The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Good morning, and watch out because I am fired up from that worship. Amen. Sounds like you are too. All right, the title of my message for you today is Not Ashamed. I want to start by talking about the gospel. Now, when we talk about the gospel, the gospel means good news. And it's not only the foundation of our faith, it's also the basis of our salvation. And it's the message that we have been commissioned by God to take to the ends of the world. So we should be pretty clear on what the gospel is and what the gospel isn't. Let's start with what it's not. The gospel is not a self-help manual. It's not a guide to a better you or your best life now. No, no, no. The gospel is a message about a man who was God. And he left heaven and he came to this earth so that he could rescue sinners. And the way he did that was by taking our place on the cross and paying for our sins and then rising from the dead three days later. Now, the Apostle Paul outlines all of this for us so beautifully in 1 Corinthians 15. And I want to read these verses together with you because they kind of, they kind of spell out where we're going with things today. So let's read this together out loud. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. All right, so there you have the the gospel in all of its beautiful simplicity. The first part states that Christ died. That's the historical fact, but it's what comes next that, that loads it with theological significance. He died for our sins. His death was not a tragic accident. It was part of God's predetermined plan. It happened according to the scriptures, and he died for you. In other words, his death was substitutionary. And that's what saves you, putting your faith in Jesus as your substitute. But then the gospel goes on to state that he rose from the dead. Can somebody say amen? Amen. He rose from the dead. He conquered the grave. The tomb is empty, and that's what we celebrate each year at Easter. But notice how sandwiched between those two absolutely monumental statements about Jesus' death and resurrection, Paul inserts this little detail about him being buried. Now, this part of the story often gets overshadowed by the other significant parts, which we just talked about, and I suppose that's understandable. But Jesus' burial is an essential component to the story and one that's worthy of our consideration. And so today we're going to tease out some things from that part of the story, which is often neglected, and God is going to reveal some things to us through it. So let's go ahead and begin reading there in verse 31 of John 19. It says, now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. 
The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you may also believe. These things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. All right. As you pull out your outlines, the first fill in the blank, if you want to fill that in, is... We've given this title for this section, Broken and Pierced. Broken and Pierced. And our story begins with Jesus hanging on the cross just after he has exhaled his last breath and committed his soul into the hands of his heavenly father. And now his, his body is slumped over and we catch up with the religious leaders who were overseeing this whole event. And they want to make sure that they have time to go and ceremonially cleanse themselves so that they are fit to celebrate the Passover with their family. So they want to expedite what's happening here. And, and they go to Pilate and they ask that he break the legs of the men on the crosses. Now, why would they ask this of him? Because this would hasten the death process. Remember how I told you that when a person was being crucified, it caused all of the weight of the whole body to rest essentially on the diaphragm, which made breathing next to impossible. It put an impossible amount of weight on your chest cavity. And, and so the only per way a person who was being crucified could actually breathe was to arch their back and push up on their wrists and their feet, which were nailed to the wooden cross. And they would arch their back and they would <gasps> gasp in another breath before slumping down in agonizing pain to slowly exhale it, only to repeat the process over and over again. So, you know, cr uh, um, criminals who were being crucified, they didn't die from, from loss of blood, which is what most people think, but actually they died from drowning in a pool of their own blood. They died from asphyxiation or suffocation. And so to hasten that process, they would come sometimes and they would break the legs so that the criminal couldn't push up and they couldn't inhale. And that's what they were asking Pilate to do with these men. But when the by the time they got to Jesus, they see that he is already dead. And so they don't break his legs. Now, here's what's interesting about that. If you jump down to verse 36... John points out that by not doing what they had been commanded to do, the soldiers were once again unwittingly helping to fulfill not just one, but two separate ancient prophecies. The first one comes to us from the pen of David, who I remind you wrote a thousand years before Jesus was born. And yet in Psalm 34, which is what John quotes here, David talks about the Messiah and the nature of his death. And it says in that psalm, he protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. That prophecy was perfectly fulfilled by the inaction of the, uh, of the, the soldiers. But notice, too, how they went on to do something that they hadn't been commanded to do. And he took his spear and he thrust it into Jesus' side. And this, too, fulfilled the prophecy. They will look on him whom they have pierced. So by not doing what they were supposed to do, and then by doing what they weren't supposed to do, they helped to fulfill two prophecies. 
But I want to peel back the layers because why would God include this prophecy about none of his bones being broken? Is that just some random bit of trivia that God wanted to throw in to the canon of scripture to impress us with his knowledge of future events? Or was there something more going on? And of course, you already know, the answer is yes, there's, there's more to the story. And for that, you have to go all the way back to Exodus chapter 12, wherein God outlines in details how he wanted the Passover feast to be celebrated. And you remember, I've taught you before how the Passover was this dramatic retelling of the redemption of the Israelites from slavery and bondage in Egypt and how God led them out with a mighty hand through the Red Sea and brought them to the promised land through the shed blood of a sacrificial lamb. And because it was so important to their history, they reenacted this story annually. And a big part of that was the Passover lamb that was sacrificed in each home because it was the blood of that lamb that brought salvation to each family as it's applied to the doorposts of the home the angel of death passed over and so they would reenact this and God gives exacting instructions and in one of those verses verse 46 of Exodus 12 God says that not one of the bones of the Passover lamb is to be broken why would he say that well, because the, the lamb had to be unblemished, it had to be perfect and without spot because it was all a shadow, it was all a type, it was all a picture of the Messiah who was ultimately to come, which explains to us why Jesus' legs couldn't be broken. He was God's Passover lamb. He had to fulfill all the types. He had to be without spot or blemish, which is why in perfect accordance with what God had foretold thousands of years in advance, Jesus' legs weren't broken. But it gets even better because we know today from a modern medical point of view that the blood that your body uses, the blood that your body produces, it gets built where? In the bones. It is the marrow of your bones that produces both the red blood cells and the white blood cells that your body needs and uses. And so what does that mean? Why am I telling you this? Because none of his legs were broken, because not a bone was broken, it means there is a continual supply of blood. It is the blood that covers us, that atones for our sins. And isn't it good to know the blood will never run out because not a bone was broken? Praise the Lord. So they walk over and instead the soldier thrusts his spear into Jesus' side and John is careful to note this mixture of blood and water comes flowing out. Now this is important because it confirmed a couple of things. First, it confirmed that Jesus was actually dead. You have to remember that that crucifixion was the carrying out of a death sentence and just like execution, any execution, proof of death had to be made. Now the, the Roman guards who were standing watch and, and carrying out the orders of Jesus' execution, they were familiar with death. I mean, they lived it and breathed it and were around it constantly. These guys had no doubt taken part in hundreds, if not thousands of executions. So they knew when someone was dead. But just to make sure, the soldier takes his spear and he thrusts it into Jesus' side. And as soon as he saw the blood and water, it confirmed to him, not only him, but John as well, that Jesus was dead. You say, how? Well, Medically speaking, we know, and they did too apparently, that the red blood cells immediately begin to separate from the plasma in the body once it's dead, once the blood stops flowing, once it stops being pumped through the heart. 
So when the soldier thrust the spear into Jesus' side and he saw the blood that had already separated from the plasma, which now looked like water, he concluded that Jesus was dead. Now, why is this important? Well, because by the time John writes this gospel, there were two different heresies that had sprung up and infiltrated the church. And they were damaging the church. One stated that Jesus didn't really die on the cross. And so there was this theory that was making its way and infecting churches. And these people were saying, you know, he didn't really die. He merely swooned on the cross. And then when he was placed in the cool, damp air of the tomb, he revived. And then they just ignore the fact that, okay, if that really happened, then you have this man who's been beaten and he's been um, whipped and he's been pierced and, and he's hung on a cross. And, and now let's say he revives and he musters up the strength to move a two-ton stone. And then he's got to deal with the, the, the Roman soldiers who are standing guard out front. He beats them up and somehow convinces the disciples that this bloodied, beaten you know, guy within an inch of death is their Messiah who rose from the dead. It just doesn't add up. But anyways, I'm getting off track. The other heresy that arose said that Jesus wasn't really human, and he was a spirit. And as a spirit, he didn't leave things like footprints and all of this kind of nonsense. And, and so John, he puts both of these heresies to bed by irrefutably proving, number one, that Jesus actually died. The blood and water prove that. But that he was actually human. The blood, again, proves this. But there's more going on. It not only tells us that Jesus died, but in addition, it might actually be providing for us a clue as to how he died. Let me explain. There's only a couple of places that would produce this kind of blood water mixture. The first obvious place would have been the, the stomach. And if he had pierced Jesus' stomach, let's say Jesus had just drunk a bunch of water before he went onto the cross, and then that, the contents of whatever was in his stomach would come spilling out with lots of blood, of course. And that would explain it. But that theory doesn't stand up to the test because Jesus cries out from the cross, I thirst. And so we know that he was actually dehydrated. He didn't have any fluid in his body. So that leaves only one other possibility. You see, based on where the soldier was standing, if he took his spear and he thrust it up, more than likely what happened is it went through the rib cage and it actually pierced his heart. Now again, medically speaking, doctors who have looked at this text talk about the fact that surrounding our heart, there is this sac called the pericardial sac. My apologies to any doctors in here if I'm getting anything wrong. But they say there's this pericardial sac. And in the event that a heart is overworked and it eventually ruptures, that sac will sometimes fill with blood. And if that blood was sitting there pooling in that sac and then Jesus died and the blood cells begin to separate from the plasma, that then would explain the blood and the water as it came down, as I mentioned a moment ago. You say, well, why are you telling us all of this? For this simple reason, it explains to us that Jesus didn't die from suffocation or asphyxiation, as was so often the case with, with other people who, who suffered as victims of crucifixion. But, but Jesus more than likely died of a broken heart. His heart literally broke. And this is something that captured John's 
attention and it, it captivated him and it was something that he evidently couldn't get past. And so as he writes this gospel account down as an old man, he still vividly recalls the blood and the water as it pours down. But it wasn't just him. There were others who were standing around that day who were profoundly impacted by what they saw and experienced. And John tells us about two such individuals in the next section. Let's read in verse 38. It says, later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Jesus, Joseph, rather, was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. So with Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. And Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid because it was the Jewish day of preparation. And since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Let me give you the second point in our outline if you want to fill this in. Not ashamed of Jesus. Not ashamed of Jesus. And here John introduces two more characters to the narrative. One of them is brand new to the story, while the other has a cameo earlier in his gospel. I'm talking, of course, about Nicodemus. He was the religious leader who, John tells us, came to Jesus earlier on in the story. He came at night. It was Nick at night, and he came with these, these questions. He was, he was curious. He was inquisitive. He was attracted and drawn to Jesus, but he was also embarrassed to be seen with Jesus, so he comes under the cover of darkness. And by referencing that story, I believe John is inviting us to go back and to revisit it. And to see what he writes here as the conclusion to what began there. So we need to go back. Let me take you back to that fateful night. As Jesus and Nicodemus, under a beautiful canopy of stars with perhaps a cool breeze blowing through the air and rustling the leaves of the trees, they find themselves engaged in what has become one of the most profound conversations to ever take place between two people. The subject of their conversation that night was the necessity of the new birth. Jesus told him, you must be born again. And hear that as a word from the Lord to each and every one of you today. Jesus didn't say you should be born again or you ought to consider it. He said, you must be born again. Now, when Nicodemus heard this, he was puzzled and he wondered aloud, how can this be? I mean, am I supposed to climb back into my mother's womb as a grown man and be born a second time? And I picture Jesus laughing, a smile creeping onto the corners of his lips as he responds. And this is what he said, and I want to read this together with you out loud. He said, no one can enter the kingdom unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. Notice Jesus points out, Nicodemus, you're thinking in terms of the flesh. You're looking through the natural, but I need you to see things through a spiritual lens. And their conversation goes on from there before it drifts to its conclusion with Jesus' memorable statement. We know it as John 3.16. It's undoubtedly the most well-known verse in the entire Bible, but Jesus didn't say, and now I'm going to give you John 3.16. It was just part of their conversation. You understand that. 
But he says to him, what is, I mean, the, the most clear and concise explanation of where salvation is found when he says in just 26 words um, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shouldn't perish but have everlasting life. And he gives the gospel to Nicodemus, but surprisingly, we're not told how Nicodemus responded. He doesn't tell us. Did he become a believer at this point? We're left to guess and wonder. He merely slips back into the shadows from whence he came. And then after forcing us to wait 16 long chapters, John finally reintroduces him to us here at this point where Nicodemus steps into the light of day to help embalm the body of Jesus. You'll notice in verse 39 that he comes carrying with him 75 pounds of spices to help him carry out this task. Now, let me tell you why that's so significant. And it speaks to us or preaches to us rather. You remember that? That other account in John chapter 12, where Mary of Bethany takes one pound of precious nard, it was, it was an embalming spice, and because of her love and her devotion to Jesus, she takes that which is her most prized possession, and she opens the flask, and she pours out the entire contents of this one pound bottle onto Jesus' feet, and she begins to wipe his feet with her hair, and Jesus says, she's done this for my burial, to prepare me for my burial, and, and Judas, in that instance, remarked that the contents of that bottle were worth a year's wages. So if one pound of this spice was worth a year's wages, how much money are we talking about here with 75 pounds? How did he even manage to carry that? He must have been laden under the weight of all of these cloths and spices. It was an expression of his love for Jesus, of his worship towards Jesus. And the point is, Nicodemus, who may have started out coming to Jesus under the cover of darkness for his fear of what others might think, his faith has now found its way into the light of day. Amen. Praise the Lord. So the question, what brought Nicodemus out of his closet and caused him to go public with his faith? And the obvious answer is the cross. When he saw Jesus love displayed in vibrant technicolor there as he paid for Nicodemus's sins, he was moved to come in, in boldness and in faith. But I think there was something else that he saw. Go with me on this journey for just a moment here. I think something triggered in his mind when he saw the spear go in and he saw the water and the blood flow out. In that moment, what if he goes back to the conversation he had had with Jesus three years prior in which Jesus said, no one can enter the kingdom unless they're born of water and the spirit. Water in the Spirit. He had puzzled over those words for the past three years. He had teased them apart and tried to put them back together again and again in his mind without effect until, until this moment when he sees the spear go in and the blood and the water flow out. And then that moment, I don't know, I think on some level it began to click the new birth, the death. Somehow they were connected, the water. Think about something with me. When a woman is getting ready to deliver, what's the first thing that happens? The water breaks. And after the water breaks, 
There is blood that flows before the baby comes. And and I'm not saying Nicodemus had it all figured out in this moment, but at some rudimentary level, I think he sees the water, he sees the blood, and he connects in some way Jesus' death with his new life. The birth comes through his death, and Nicodemus begins to put these things together, and it compels him. But it wasn't just him that was moved by the cross. So too was Joseph. And his story we want to look at next as we close this morning. And if you want to fill out in the last blank in your outline, it's moved by love. Write down the word love. As John introduces us here to Joseph of Arimathea. Now, most of his story is shrouded in mystery. Although he is briefly mentioned in all four Gospels for the role he played in Jesus' burial, we know nothing of his past. And after his brief appearance on the stage here, he disappears as soon as he, uh, uh, almost as soon as he arrives, never to be seen or heard from again. So who was this guy? Well, by piecing together the scant bits of information that the other gospel authors provide, we can start to put together just a little bit of a portrait of who Joseph was. For instance, Mark tells us that he was a respected member of the council, that is the Sanhedrin, the the council of men who had just condemned Jesus to death. Joseph of Arimathea belonged to that group, but he was waiting expectantly for the kingdom. Matthew tells us that he was a rich man. That explains how Jesus landed in this tomb. Only rich people could afford tombs like that. And Luke calls him a good and righteous man who, though a member of the council, had not agreed to their plan of action in wanting Jesus to be crucified. Now, interestingly, when you read what John had to say about him, he calls him a disciple, but he, he adds uh, the, the tag, he is a secret disciple, and that, that intrigues me. You know, if you've grown up in and around the church, or you've been a part of this thing for any length of time, you, you've no doubt heard a lot of sermons or perhaps seen a lot of books that focus on the need to go all in for Jesus and, and to be a sold-out disciple. And so it's notable that Joseph was none of those things. He wasn't a sold-out disciple. He was a secret disciple. If he disagreed with the council's decision to crucify Jesus, then he did so quietly. Perhaps when it came time for him to vote, he, he merely abstained. We don't know for sure, but what we do know is that nowhere in the record of Jesus' crucifixion do we read about him publicly standing up and stepping out and voicing his dissent. He sat quietly by while these men condemned Jesus to a criminal's death. But perhaps I'm being too hard on him. After all, he had a lot to lose by going public with his faith. I mean, he was influential, he was powerful, he was wealthy, and he was a well-respected member of the community. He had worked his whole life to get where he was. And all of that would be gone in a moment if he identified with Jesus. And for a long time, that was enough to keep him quiet. John mentions here that he was afraid of the Jewish leaders. But then again... When he saw the love of Jesus on the cross, it moved him too, just like it had done Nicodemus. It drew him out and caused him to go public with his faith. And that, friends, is what the cross is designed and intended to do. It draws a veritable line in the sand, and it forces you to choose which side of history will you be on. Will you identify with Jesus, or will you cower in fear? In a memorable sermon on this passage of Scripture, the late great preacher Charles Spurgeon, he had this to say, and I want to read this quote to you. 
The cross is a wonderful magnet, drawing to Jesus every person of true metal. If the cross does not bring a person out, what will? If the spectacle of dying love does not quicken us into courageous affection for him, what can? And it's notable that it did that very work in Joseph's life. And so now, with his newfound boldness and courage, he approaches none other than Pilate, and he asks for the body of Jesus. Now, this was his all-in moment. And you need to recognize it was a risky move on his part. After all, Pilate was the same guy who had just condemned Jesus to death by crucifixion. Who's to say that he wouldn't do the same thing with Joseph here? But Joseph didn't care, not anymore. He was done hiding, and the cross did that. This is what the cross does, not just with Joseph, but with so many others. I think of that thief who was being crucified next to Jesus, who had uh, a conviction in his heart, and he was compelled to say, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He saw the way Jesus handled death, and he recognized this man is a king. He's truly a king. And so Jesus turned to him, and he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. So too, the man who was responsible, one of those Roman soldiers who was responsible for carrying out the orders of Jesus' death, at the conclusion of the whole thing, as he experienced all of these supernatural phenomena, he looked up and one of those soldiers declared, surely this man was the son of God and he was brought to faith. And now we have Joseph of Arimathea. How did it happen for him? Perhaps it occurred in his heart when he stood there and he saw them drive the nails through his wrists and he heard Jesus offer forgiveness to his tormentors. Then again, maybe it was that moment when he saw the sky go black, when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me as he took upon him the sins of the world? Or maybe it was when he saw Jesus use his final breath to declare victory through his death. And he cries out, it is finished. And then he bows his head and gives up the spirit. And in that moment, the Bible tells us the earth shook and there's a supernatural earthquake. Whatever it was, however it happened, Joseph came to faith. And once he did, he knew he couldn't remain silent anymore. And so he goes to Pilate. Now, what's amazing about that is we don't have any actual words of Joseph recorded for us. But you know how it is. Sometimes our actions speak louder than our words. And let's be clear, Joseph, Joseph's actions speak profoundly to us of his faith. You know, typical of that time, the bodies of crucified criminals were left to rot on their crosses as a warning to passers-by, their flesh eventually being stripped away by vultures. Others were tossed into garbage pits or buried under a pile of rubble or perhaps burned in a garbage dump. In the rare instances where someone was actually afforded the dignity of a proper burial, that responsibility, the responsibility fell on the shoulders of, of the family. And, and in the event that the family was unable to carry that out, the, the responsibility fell on the shoulders of the closest friends, which in Jesus' case would mean, of course, his disciples. But those guys are nowhere to be found, are they? They all tucked tail and ran and hid. They're locked in, a, in an upper room, hiding in fear for their very lives. They'd abandoned him in his hour of need. Enter Joseph and Nicodemus. And this is what I love. These guys didn't have a great start, admittedly. They started out in the shadows. They started out as secret followers. But they stepped up to the plate in a big way when it mattered most. 
Now, by going public in this way, they certainly would have lost some things. They lost their positions. They lost their influence. It had already been uh, decreed that anyone who uh, publicly identified with Jesus would be excommunicated from the synagogue. And in those days, it wasn't just like getting kicked out of church. The synagogue was the hub of of not just religious life, but, but all social life in the Jewish culture. And so they had a lot to lose. But let's not mince words. Whatever they lost pales in comparison to what they gained. Let me just outline a few things that Joseph gained by going public and by identifying with Jesus. Number one, he got to help fulfill ancient prophecy. Isaiah, this is Isaiah 53, 9, if you want to jot that down. It says this of the Messiah, that he would be assigned a grave with the wicked, yet with the rich in his death. Joseph was a rich man. It was his tomb that Jesus was laid in. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. And so this prophecy, he would die a criminal's death, but be buried with the rich. Joseph is the one who fulfilled that. And without his obedience, this part of this story and this prophecy never happens. But it gets better. Not only did he get to fulfill ancient prophecy, his boldness also lands him a starring role in not just one, but in all four of the Gospels. Now, there's only a handful of characters whose story finds their way into each of the four narratives. We have these four uh, different vantage points or perspectives on Jesus' Jesus' life, and only a handful of folks find their way into all four, and Joseph is one of those. But thirdly, and, and undoubtedly most importantly, by not being ashamed to identify with Jesus in his death, Joseph assured himself of the fact that Jesus wouldn't be ashamed of him on the day when it really matters. We have to read this verse together. This is Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 and 33. Let's read it out loud. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Nicodemus and Joseph go public, and the thing that drew them out was the cross. Listen to me. I need you to hear this. These guys had undoubtedly heard the stories of Jesus' miracles, but it wasn't the miracles that moved them. Perhaps they had been there and and heard his teachings about the kingdom, and Jesus' teachings were powerful, But it wasn't the truth of his words that compelled them, that brought them out. It wasn't the miracles. It wasn't the messages. It was the cross that grabbed hold of their hearts. And it is the cross and the cross alone that will move you to a place of reckless abandonment in your discipleship. It's not just knowing intellectually in your head who Jesus is and what his death on the cross procured. It is something that you have to see with your own eyes and be moved at an emotional, spiritual level by in your heart. And how does that happen? What does that look like? I mean, for them, it meant taking down his physical body from the cross. Let's just think, let's just unsanitize this for a moment and think about what a bloody mess that would have been. I mean, they were the guys that had to pull the nails out of his wrists and feet. His slumped body would have draped over their shoulders as they carried him and and carefully took rags and wiped the blood from his brow and, and cleaned his body off. But in the process of cleaning him, what got all over them? His blood. They were covered 
in his blood as they cleaned him and prepared him for burial. And you say, well, I don't have an opportunity to go public in that way and and take his body down from the cross like that. Ah, but yes, you do. You see, earlier on the night when Jesus shared what would be the last supper with his disciples, it says that he took the bread and he broke it and he gave thanks. And he distributed it to his disciples and he said, this, this is my body, which is given for you. Then he took the cup, the third cup, the cup of redemption, and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant, my blood shed for the remission of sins. As often as you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. Paul adds this commentary later on in 1 Corinthians. He says, as often as you partake of the Lord's Supper, you proclaim his death. We need to understand, friends, that when we partake of communion, it's not something that we do out of rote and routine. There is something profoundly significant that happens in the spiritual realm. We are literally taking the body of Christ and I know it's not his physical body but in a spiritual sense. We're saying your body on the cross that you gave for me, you were broken and bruised and beaten that I might be made whole. Your blood that was spilled, it is applied to my heart so that I can be washed whiter than snow. And all of that happens in a beautiful way every time we get around the Lord's table and we take the bread and we drink the cup. They took down his body. We take the bread and Jesus washes us. We can go public with our faith by partaking of communion. But there's more. You see, it wasn't just the blood that they came under, but there was a mixture of blood and water. The blood, of course, is pictured through the cup of communion, but the water It gets symbolized through the obedient act of baptism. And you know what baptism is? It is a public identification with Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection, which is why I'm so thrilled at the fact that we're part of a church that baptizes hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. I mean, to date this year, we've probably baptized close to 500 people between all of our ministries. Praise the Lord. And what each of these individuals is doing is they go under the water and it's a picture of Jesus in his death and in his burial. He was crucified. He was buried. He was placed in the tomb. We go under the water to signify that the old us apart from Christ has been crucified. So it's no longer we who live, but it's him who lives in us. And the life we now live, we live it by faith in the Son of God. And then we come up because Jesus triumphed over the grave. And all of that is pictured in a beautiful, symbolic, wonderful way through this act called baptism. And so we identify with him. And I do believe with all of my heart that God is calling some Josephs and some Nicodemuses into his church. But, but you're already Christians. What am I trying to say? Help me, Lord. It's like you're a Christian, kind of. You're a Christian, but you're a closet Christian. You're maybe like an undercover Christian. And if your friends or your neighbors or your coworkers found out that you were a believer, they'd be like, wow, what, you? You had me stumped. I had no idea. And it's not that you don't believe because you're here. You believe. You're, you're a disciple, but you're like Joseph. You're a secret disciple. And, and you're sort of sold out. You're kind of committed. And you think, well, maybe I just need to learn more. I need to grow more. I need to be a better Christian. And that's not what's going to do it. 
If we learn anything from the example of Nicodemus and Joseph, we learn this, that the only thing that will draw you out of the shadows, the only thing that will cause you to go all in with your devotion to Jesus is seeing him on the cross. And so I need you through eyes of faith. I need the spirit of the Lord to to help energize my words so that the eyes of your heart are enlightened to see him, to see his love displayed, to see his heart revealed, to understand that because he wasn't ashamed to identify with you on the cross. You don't need to be ashamed to identify with him in his death and resurrection. Paul said it like this. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. And last but not least, one other lesson that we learned from these two guys is that it's never too late They had an ignoble start. They started out, you know, weakly and tepidly and secretly, but their faith found its way to the forefront and they eventually went all in. And God is drawing some of you to that same place today. Will you pray with me? Thank you, Lord, for these men and their stories and how they preach. Man, do they preach. Might you move us to that same place? Help Help us to see you the way they did, Jesus. Not just as some part of history that, yes, I suppose in some abstract way, impacts and affects and has a bearing on how our destinies and lives play out. We need to go deeper than that. And we need to see that not only did you die, but you died in our place. That our birth is made possible through your death. That when you hung there and died on the cross, you were giving birth to a movement, to a people, to a church. So that we can enter the new birth of life because your blood was spilled. We can come under the water. We can come under the flow of blood. We can find forgiveness for our sins and new life in Jesus. Help us, Lord, to see this and be moved by it. Not just to know it, not just to be, you know, impressed intellectually. Help us to be moved, captivated, and captured. And ultimately, yes, Lord, compelled by the cross. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.